Well, as, uh, as you have heard, today was supposed to be one of our, one of our two missions Sundays, and um, so we, because of the snowzilla that was forecasted this week, we, we canceled activities yesterday, and our guest speaker was to come from Des Moines, Iowa to yesterday and be here today, but uh, we told him to stay home as well, to not be traveling 35W on, during a snowstorm, so... Um, so our missions weekend kind of fell apart on us here. And, uh, and then we've done a little bit of an assessment of the number of kids that are here and things like that. And we've made the decision this morning to cancel Sunday school next hour. So we'll enjoy a time of worship this morning, time in God's word, and then take the rest of the day for, for your family. And we'll resume our schedule next week unless there's another blizzard coming. I'm not sure. We're, we're all kind of fed up with it, but it's going to end. My wife keeps telling me there's an end to it. There's, I don't believe it. I think Dave and Cindy, the, the, the motorcycle ride at the end of September might be the first ride of the season, the way it's going. Not sure. Not sure. So, so that means that uh, because today was scheduled for something else, that it's pastor's choice today for sermon. So, we're, no. No, <laughs> no, not after this weekend, you can't. So, um, so this morning, I, I feel like the Lord has impressed on my heart to speak about the nation of Israel this morning. The headlines this week have been inundated with anti-Semitic remarks of a junior representative in Congress, and the, the news has just been full of that. And again, Minnesota makes ourselves proud in Washington. Um, the remarks against Israel and the Jews have been so blatant and, and so offensive that they drew criticism from both political parties, leaders of both political parties. And um, many called for an apology. Some called for her to be removed from a key, key committee seat. And in the end... It seems like Washington does what it does best and whitewashed over everything. So my question to you this morning is, I'm not here to talk about politics, but my question then flows from that conversation, and I think it's a, it's a, it should be a major concern for us to hear this kind of talk on a national level. Why does this headline, why does this matter to us as followers of Christ? Why should it matter to us if a wave of anti-Semitism seems to be gaining momentum in our government? Or is it, all of this just a part of the circus that we've come to expect from Washington? Um, or maybe it's a genuine concern, especially for those of us who look to Scripture and God's truth. And I believe it is. It is for me anyway. In an interview on a nationally televised news program, uh, a pastor was asked why there doesn't seem to be more of an uproar about these issues. And his answer, I, I don't remember the exact, how the question was stated exactly, but, but that was the gist of the idea. How, why isn't there more of an uproar? And it might have been directed at the church, I'm not sure. But his answer was alarming to me. And he said this, by and large, the church doesn't know the history of Israel 
or its key role in the plan of God. The assessment was, was upsetting to me, but I'm afraid that his assessment was probably accurate. There are, there are a lot of things going on in our world today, in our culture today, that are a major concern for us as Christians. Just pick a headline. And as a nation, we seem to be in some kind of a free fall away from God and his truth. But this issue of Israel and its relationship to us as followers of Christ and as a nation should be one that we have a firm grasp on. Understanding Israel and God's plan is a key ingredient to our view of God, to our view of his salvation, and our view of his prophetic plans for the world. So I'd like to take this morning, if it's pastor's choice this morning, I'd like to take this morning and look at the history of Israel. And I'd like to look at the role that Israel plays in God's salvation history and why it's important to us. So I hope you have your Bibles with you this morning. We're going to be jumping around a little bit. We'll start in Romans chapter 9. And that'll, Romans 9 through 11 will be our base camp. Now, if you know Romans chapter 9 verses, or chapters 9 through 11, you'll know that they are difficult chapters to work our way through. There's a lot of difficult topics in there. Uh, but it's, 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 it's focused in on Israel, who God says Israel is and the importance of it and the dynamics of his relationship to the nation of Israel and our relationship as followers of Christ to Israel. Now, over the last year, we've studied the book of Galatians. We've studied the Beatitudes. And now we're working our way through the Sermon on the Mount. Now, a common thread in all of that, all of those different topics of Scripture that we've touched on, a common thread is the role of the law in our faith today. The law of Moses, God's law, the Old Testament. Underlying that question of the law is the question of Israel's role in our faith and Israel's role in God's plan. With a new covenant, is the old thrown over? Is it done away with? Is Israel still a part of God's plan or isn't it? These are important questions, and apparently these are questions that were confronting the Apostle Paul as well because he wrote about it in, in Romans chapter 9, verse through 11. So it's not an unfamiliar question, even back to the days of the Apostles. The book of Romans is a thorough explanation. It's a profound explanation of our faith, of our salvation, the salvation that God has given to us. And it's a thorough profound illustration or explanation of our identity in Christ. At the end of, of eight chapters of profound truth regarding salvation, the first thing that comes to the Apostle Paul's mind is Israel. He's concerned about our, our understanding of Israel. If faith in Christ has passed them by, if, if they have rejected Jesus as Savior, then what becomes of them? That's the question. And it's also a question, it's always a question in the political realm, but it's not an uncommon question in the church today either. You see, a large segment of the church 
believes that Israel lost its covenantal status with the birth of the church. Some go so far as to say that, that the church has replaced Israel in Scripture. All the promises of is, given to Israel are now the domain of the church. When you hear terms such as replacement theology, amillennialism or preterism, this is part of their understanding. That when the church came along, Israel was taken out of the picture. In their view, in these views of Israel and prophecy, in, this, in these views, Israel is no different than any other nation on earth. And it's deserving of no better or worse consideration than you would give to anyone else. So you see, it's a, it's a concern in the church as well. It's an issue. So Paul takes up the argument in Romans chapter 9. Let's start there. Chapter 9, verse 1. I am speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen according to the flesh. They are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. Can you hear the heart of the Apostle Paul? He's willing to sacrifice his life so that his brethren, the Jews, would know Jesus. He recognizes that they have rejected Christ, and he longs to see them come back, to enter into all that God has for them in Christ Jesus. For Paul, the heart, of, heart, the heart of God breaks for the people of Israel. God still longs for them to draw near to him. I can't help but think of Zechariah 2, verse 8. Make a note of that in your notes. Zechariah 2, verse 8. It still stands, the promise still stands, that God sees the people of Israel as What? Take a guess. Chosen has something to do with a fruit. Apple of his eye. Isn't that a great expression? God still sees the people as the apple of his eye. After their long history, their, their cycle of rebellion, he still sees them as the apple of his eye. And if we read some of the other passages that are similar that mention the apple of his eye, God, God sees that God will, will act against anyone who acts against his people. God will take up, take up his, 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 his judgment and his, his wrath against anyone who stands against the people of Israel. He will stand with them, and he will stand against anyone who stands against them. Look at verse 4. They are Israelites, and to them belong. And I, I look at verse 4, and I think, yes, they are still Israel. It hasn't changed. They've played a key role in all that God is doing in history. Look at the things that Paul mentions in this verse, in verse 5. Look at all the things he says. Come to us, 
to the nation of Israel, the people of Israel. The adoption. God called them. He called them to be his people. And he says over and over and over again in the Old Testament, he says, I, you will be my people and I will be your God. So Paul says the adoption comes through them. The glory of God walked with them. And we, we see that often as he led his people in the desert, in the wilderness. He led them. They saw the glory of God in the temple. They saw the glory of God in, in, in the tabernacle. They saw the glory of God in the face of Moses when he came down from the mountain, so much so that he had to cover his face up so that the, the people wouldn't be affected by the glory of God that shone from his face. They saw the glory of God. God was pleased to show him all of himself, his glory. They're his people. The covenants came to the people of Israel. The law was given to the people of Israel. Worship. God taught them what he expects in worship. And, and some of the Old Testament is given over to instructions on how you approach me, God. He gave all of those instructions to the people of Israel. He gave the promises to the people of Israel in the Old Testament. He gave them the patriarchs. He gave us the patriarchs. We wouldn't have stories about King David, about Moses, about Abraham. We wouldn't have all those stories of the patriarchs if it weren't for God choosing the people of Israel. And then God, Paul finally mentions the last one, the most important one. And he says, through them in the flesh came the Christ. The sent one from God, Jesus. And Paul himself was a model Jew, and he looked at the history of the Jewish people, and he saw the handiwork of God all over it. And first, God chose them to be his people. This adoption, this, this choosing by God is at the heart of the anti-Semitism problem that we're hearing about. It's, it's been at the heart of the anti-Semitism problem throughout all of history. How in the world could anyone claim to be God's chosen people? How arrogant is how, is how the thought process goes. But the reality is that they didn't choose God, that God chose them. The reality is that it was all God's choosing. It wasn't the choice of Israel. In fact, if we know the history of Israel, we know that they rebelled pretty much at every opportunity they ran, ran away from God. They weren't out seeking God. God chose them. And it wasn't due to the merits of the people of Israel. In fact, it might have been possibly due to the, their fact that they didn't merit God's grace. The forefather of Israel, Abraham, wasn't even a Jew when God called him. He was a pagan who worshipped multiple gods. God called Abraham to follow him. And from him, God would make a new nation. So keep your hand, your, your thumb in Romans chapter 9. Let's go back to Genesis 12. We read this often. This is a key passage in all of Scripture. So it's not a wonder that many, many other passages point back to it. This is the calling of Abraham. Genesis chapter 12, verse 1. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you 
and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. God called Abraham, and through his seed, through Abraham, God would create a people to follow after him. And if you notice, he talks about blessing those who bless you and, and, and cursing those who curse you. But he, there's an important thought at the end of that calling, and he says this, in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. See, God didn't choose Israel just to choose Israel. God chose Israel to display his power, to display his glory, to display his splendor and his love and his reaching out, not just to the people of Israel, but to the entire world. And this is, this is a, a principle of blessing anyway, isn't it? God never intends the blessing that he gives to you to stop with you. The blessing is always to flow through out into the lives of other people. And so God chose them. God said, I will build a people. I will call out a people from one man. And through this nation, I will reveal myself. I will walk with you. I will be your God. And I will show you all of myself. I'll give you my law. I'll teach you how to worship me. I'll teach you how to be my kids. But it's all for the purpose of the whole world seeing what God is doing in the people of Israel. All so that they can see the glory of God. All the families in the earth will be blessed by you. Now when we, think about, when we, when we talk about calling, the theological term for this is election. Paul spells, spends much of the chapter 9 explaining God's election of Israel. So go back to Romans chapter 9 if you would. I don't have time to read the whole section this morning. We're not going to spend all of our time here. We certainly could. But Romans chapter 9, look at verse 14. Talking about election, talking about the fact that he chose Israel. Paul says this, what shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. Listen to this. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. The scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. When we view the election of Israel through human terms, we cannot help but conclude, we cannot help but be full of doubts and skepticism as to why they're called. Why in the world would God choose Israel? As with any nation, it's not hard to find godless things about them or their society. But we have to see this question through the eyes of God. What is his plan? What's he trying to do? What's he trying to accomplish by choosing Israel. See, if we look only to our attitudes, to our, only to attitudes or behavior or godliness, godlessness, we miss the big picture. That this is God's choice, and God knows what he's doing. Now, Paul gives us quite a list of things that come to us through Israel. Let me focus on two of them, two prominent ideas that we need to consider um, 
as we look at Israel and the importance of it in God's plan. First, the law was given through Israel. Listen to this. Without the law, we wouldn't know sin. Without knowing sin, I wouldn't know my need for a Savior. Without knowing my need for a Savior, I wouldn't turn to Christ. You see, if there's no law, there's no Savior. Turn back to Romans chapter 7. Starting at verse 7, Paul writes this, What then shall we say? That the law is sin? By no means, yet if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. For I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. For apart from the law, sin lies dead. I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. The very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me and through it killed me. So the law is holy, and the commandment is holy, and it's righteous, and it's good. God gave the law so that I could come to the conclusion, so that I could fully realize my need for a Savior, the Savior who is Christ. The second thing that, that the second prominent thing that comes is, is that Israel gives us a picture of grace and redemption. The, 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 the story of the Jews is one of constant rebellion. Even after the great deliverance from Egypt and their bondage in, in Egypt and, and they came out and they crossed the sea and God opened up the sea and God fed them in the wilderness and after seeing the miraculous power of God over and over and over again, the people of Israel constantly sought another way. They often sought other gods. Who can forget when Moses went up on the mountain and and they forgot, they, they just said, who's, Mo who's Moses? We haven't seen him for so many days. We don't know what he's doing up there. We need to worship somebody. Remember what they did? They crushed up all the gold that they had, and they threw it in the fire. What did Aaron say? Remember what Aaron said? Oh, Moses, I, we just threw all this gold in there, and this is what came out, a golden calf. And we worshiped the golden calf, and, and we had all kinds of godless worship around this golden calf. I just threw the gold in the fire and it just popped out. It's the story of Israel. It's a cycle. It's a constant cycle. Scripture refers to Israel as an unfaithful wife, even going so far as to call her a prostitute in the way that she continually rejects God. But their story is also one of God pursuing them, of fulfilling his promises to them, and constantly offering them redemption. Again, he calls them the apple of his eye. He does that again in Psalm 17, verse 8. Through their story, we have a clear picture of our own sin nature and our own need, just as theirs of a Savior. Their story draws us toward the grace and salvation offered in Christ. It's so easy for us to look at their story in the Old Testament. Look at the constant rebellion. Look at the rejection of Jesus Christ in the Gospels. It's so easy for us to, to get smug about it and say, oh, I would never do that. And the scripture says, oh, yeah, you would. 
The law came to hold that mirror up to all of us. So if we, if we think that we're better, or think that we would never fall into the trap that they did, think again. God gave them to us as a picture of sin, of rebellion, and redemption. And he's going to fulfill it. Turn with me to Ezekiel chapter 37. So many, so many places to choose from. So many references in the Old Testament. But Psalm 37 is an amazing passage. My focus is on verses 24 to 28. Let's start back at verse 21. Then say to them, Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I will take the people of Israel from the nations among which they have gone, and I will gather them from all around and bring them to their own land. Oh, there's, there's, there's three or four different sermons right in that verse right there. And I will make them one nation in the land, on the mountains of Israel. And one king shall be king over them all, and they shall be no longer two nations and no longer divided into two kingdoms. They shall not defile themselves anymore with their idols and their detestable things worth any of their transgressions. See, God doesn't gloss over their rebellion. But I will save them from all the backslidings in which they have sinned, and I will cleanse them, and they shall be my people, and I will be their God. Now look at verse 24. My servant David shall be king over them, and they shall all have one shepherd. They shall walk in my rules, and they be careful to obey my statutes. They shall dwell in the land that I gave to my servant Jacob when your fathers lived. They and their children and their children's children shall dwell there forever. And David, my servant, shall be their prince forever. I will make a covenant of peace with them. It will be an everlasting covenant with them. And I will set them in their land and multiply them, and I will set my sanctuary in their midst forevermore. My dwelling place shall be with them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Then the nations will know that I am the Lord who sanctifies Israel when my sanctuary is in their midst forevermore. So for all those who say that Israel no longer has a role in God's kingdom, in God's plan of salvation, there it is. How many times did the word forevermore appear in that passage? They will be my people. I will be their God forever. He will dwell with them. and The world will see the glory of God through their redemption. Look at verse 28. Then the nations will know that I am the Lord. You see, when we talk about Israel... The glory of God is at stake. And when he says something, when he promises something to Israel or to you or to I, to me, he says he will do it. And this Israel is a testimony of that, is a promise of that. And as the psalmist would say, Selah. Okay, second idea is that Israel is still called. Look at Romans chapter 11. Are you with me? Yeah, you're kind of quiet this morning. Okay. 
God has not forgotten Israel. Indeed, his focus, his focus for this age is in the birth and the growth of the church. He's preparing, as he says as in Scripture, a, a, he's preparing a bride for Jesus Christ, but it in no way means that he's eliminated Israel from replacing God's salvation history. She is still called of God, still pursued by God for relationship with him. So Paul describes the situation with Israel throughout the church age, including today. Look at this, Romans chapter 11. I'll start at verse 11. So I ask, did they stumble in order that they might fall? By no means. Rather, through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles so as to make Israel jealous. Now, if their trespass means riches for the world, and if their failure means riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their full inclusion mean? See, Paul, in, in laying this all out, he's looking ahead when Israel comes back to Christ. Now, I'm speaking to you Gentiles. Inasmuch then as I am an apostle to the Gentiles, I magnify my ministry in order somehow to make my fellow Jews jealous and thus save some of them. For if their rejection means the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance mean but life from the dead? If the dough offered as first fruits is holy, so is the whole lump. And if the root is holy, so are the branches. Go down to verse 25. Lest you be wise in your own sight, I want you to understand this mystery, brothers. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And in this way, all Israel will be saved. As it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion. He will banish ungodliness from Jacob. And this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. As regards the gospel, they are enemies of God for your sake. But as regards election, they are beloved for the sake of their forefathers. For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. For just as you were one time disobedient to God, but now have received mercy because of their disobedience, so they too now have been disobedient in order that by the mercy shown to you, they may also now receive mercy. For God has consigned all, all to disobedience that he may have mercy on all. We'll stop there. Man, these are difficult concepts to grasp. First, because they have rejected the Messiah, we've heard the gospel. The gospel went out into all the world because it went through the Jews first. Because of their role in salvation history, Jesus came to preach to the Jews first. We've talked about this. Jesus usually went to the synagogue first, usually went to the Jews first. He even said that he came to the Jews first. Before the gospel went out to all the non-Jews, the Gentiles, the Jews had a chance to hear the message because they're God's people. We see it in the ministry of Paul as well. He usually went first to the synagogue in town and then when they would reject his teaching, which they often would, he would go out to the Gentiles. Because of their rejection, God caused a partial hardening in their hearts. This gets really hard to grab a hold of. So they can't hear the message. The reason, Paul says, is so that we Gentiles can hear the gospel. If you read closely, verse 25 there's a time limit to this. Lest you be wise in your own sight, I want you to understand this mystery, brothers. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the 
fullness of the Gentiles has come in. It would appear that there's a, a fixed number of people that will come to Christ in history. When that number is reached, when the tank is full, God will turn his attention back to the Jews and their salvation. In the meantime, what's the role of the church? The role of the church is to so live out the life of Christ that it prompts a holy jealousy among the Jewish people. Look at Romans chapter 10, verse 18. But I ask, have they not heard? Indeed they have, for their voice has gone out to all the earth and their words to the ends of the world. But I ask, did Israel not understand? First Moses said, I will make you jealous of those who are not a nation. With a foolish nation, I will make you angry. And then Isaiah is so bold as to say, I have been found by those who did not seek me. I have shown myself to those who did not ask for me. But of Israel, he says, all day long, I have held out my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. In his book, The Last Hour, Amir Sarfati describes this jealousy. It's, it's hard to understand this jealousy. But Amir Sarfati says it like this. He says, imagine if you would a couple that is dating and they have a good solid relationship and their relationship is going along well and the young lady starts to take her boyfriend for, for granted. And so she starts kind of just saying little comments about him here and there in front of other people. And she starts to kind of bat her eyelashes at other guys and, and starts to do that. But she just assumes because he's such a good guy that she can kind of, she can kind of misbehave a little bit and, and the relationship, relationship will still stay solid. Until one day, the young man catches the eye of another young lady and they started spending time together. His girlfriend notices that he's rather enjoying his company with the other young lady. And so she realizes that she's been playing a game, and she realizes she needs to get serious about a relationship with him in order to enter back into the intimacy with him. That's the idea of jealousy with the people of Israel. So that God can show that he's building his church, he's building his people, he's is, is the bride of Jesus Christ in order for the Jews to look on it and say, that's what a real relationship with God looks like. And I want that. And that's what he's doing in us. He's making the people of Israel jealous for who God is and their relationship with him. So rather than condemning the hard-heartedness of the Jews, we're to live for Christ in such a way that it provokes jealousy. It makes them curious, jealous of this relationship of God. In the rest of Romans chapter 11, Paul warns believers about arrogance regarding our life in Christ and the Jews. Rather than judging, we're to remember that our heritage, our heritage comes through them. Salvation history runs through the Jewish people. Our longing as it was for Paul, is to live in such a way as to woo them back to God, the living God, their God. Okay, third idea, third, third thought this morning is that Israel is still central, still central to salvation history. 
So along with surveying the history of Israel, as well as considering our present relationship with her, we also need to look to the future. Israel is very much a part of what God is doing at the end of the age. And I believe with all my heart that we are at the end of the age. I believe that at any moment, the kidnapping of the church, the rapture of the church could come and we could be taken away. We could be taken away. And that leaves Israel. Romans eleven twenty nine tells us that the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. Ezekiel 37, which we read earlier, told us that, that he will come to dwell with them, to make a covenant of peace with them. Clearly, it's a future look at the Israel that God has in mind, at God's work with Israel. When we consider the times of the signs, which I believe we're living in, the markers of the end of the age and the return of Christ, it, it seems clear that we are those who are living in the last generation before the coming of Christ. The world seems to be aligning itself daily with the signs that Jesus said would mark our world at the end. For that reason, that we, the church, as I said earlier, are on the precipice of the rapture. Jesus is about to call us home. The trumpet's going to sound, and in the blink of an eye, we're going to be gone. Once that happens, once the church is taken away, the, the world will plunge into the days of the tribulation and the great tribulation. For our discussion today, it's important to note that the tribulation period is all about the nation of Israel. It's all about what we've been discussing today. The seven-year tribulation period uh, will commence with the Antichrist making a peace treaty with the nation of Israel. If you can imagine the nation of Israel laying down their arms, that day is coming, and I believe it's coming soon, when an Antichrist, when somebody with great influence will come on the world stage and cause everybody to leave Israel alone to such a degree that they'll sign a peace treaty and Israel will stop fighting. I cannot imagine that day. But that's what will start the period of the tribulation. The temple will, re will be rebuilt and sacrifices will return. When we were in Israel last year, uh, we saw, we saw that the utensils that are part of the, 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 the temple. We, we learned that, that building the temple would take a long time. Help me if I get in this right. Building the temple itself in all of its splendor will take a long time. But building the altar and getting this sacrificial system in place is only a matter of hours or days. They have, a, they have an altar made out of bricks that they can easily transport and set up on the temple mount and begin sacrifices quickly. It can happen just like that. The temple will be, built, will be rebuilt and sacrifices will return. At the midpoint of the tribulation, three and a half years Antichrist will stop the sacrifices and he will demand that he will be worshipped himself. In Revelation chapter 7, we hear of the 144,000 Jews who were sealed by God for some kind of service to God. It's widely thought that they will be evangelists who will be sent out to preach the gospel one more time to the world. Jewish evangelists preaching Christ. Can you believe that? Can you imagine that? And if you, if you read 
if you continue to read through chapter 7, it's a summary of many, many more people coming to Christ. And I wonder if it's because of the testimony of the 144,000. 12,000 from each tribe of Israel. God is going to use Israel in a mighty way. In Revelation chapter 12, the people of Israel are pursued by the Antichrist, by the devil himself. He's longing to destroy them, finally to destroy them. He's been trying all throughout history to destroy Israel. He can't do it. And in Revelation chapter 12, he thinks he's got them cornered. And God causes the people of Israel to flee into the wilderness, and they are hidden there by God so the devil can't find them. God protects them because of his work in them. The tribulation will be an awful time for the Jews. We think of the building of the temple as a happy time. We look forward to the building of the temple. But guess what? We won't be here. And it actually marks the beginning of the tribulation, which will be an awful time for the people of Israel. And it's all designed to call them back to God. It's during this time that God will save Israel. And all the promises of God to Israel will be fulfilled. Look at Romans 11. Verse 26 again. And in this way, all Israel will be saved. As it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion. He will banish ungodliness from Jacob. And this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. God will erase it all for the people of Israel. And they will be saved. God says that he has consigned all to disobedience that he may have mercy on all. The Old Testament promises that his people will be given his peace, be given his spirit, will be his people forever. The gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. So what's that mean for us? Genesis chapter 12, 1 to 3, and Zechariah 2, 8, the apple of his eye. It means that God is concerned for his kids. He who blesses Israel will be blessed by God. It is so important that we as a nation continue to stand with Israel. Because, not because of political systems, not because governments are perfect, not because individuals are perfect, but because God said, they are the apple of my eye, and I'm standing with them. Whoever blesses them, I will bless. Whoever curses them, I will curse. We don't do it for any other reason except for the fact that God said so. And then we, the church of Jesus Christ, need to be modeling Christ need to be walking in Christ in intimacy. We need to be proclaiming Jesus Christ as the Savior, as the sent one, as the Messiah for the people of Israel in such a way that it provokes jealousy among the Jews, that they see the living God in us. It's true, we dare not think too highly of Israel. We dare not think too lowly of Israel. We have to have an honest assessment of Israel. They are not perfect people. They don't make perfect decisions they're still called of God. So therefore, we need to support Israel. And we need to recognize anti-Semitism. We need to pray for our country. And we need to speak out when our leaders defy God's plan for Israel. Anti-Semitism, such as we have seen in the last weeks, should concern us. It should break our hearts. Let me close by reading from Psalm 122 as the worship team comes forward. Psalm 122.
Would you stand with me? Psalm 122, is, uh, it says in your Bible, a song of ascents of David. It means it is written by people who are singing this song as they go to Jerusalem, as they anticipate worshiping in the temple, as they anticipate meeting with God. That's what a psalm of ascent means. Let me just read the whole psalm. I was glad when they said to me, let us go to the house of the Lord. Our feet have been standing within your gates, O Jerusalem. Jerusalem built as a city that is bound firmly together, to which the tribes go up, the tribes of the Lord, as was, as was decreed for Israel, to give thanks to the name of the Lord. There thrones for judgment were set, the thrones of the house of David. Verse 6, pray for the peace of Jerusalem. May they be secure who love you. Peace be within your walls and security within your towers. For my brothers and companions' sake, I will say, peace be within you. Lord Jesus, that is our prayer. We join in this prayer of the psalm, psalmist today and the people of Israel who, who walked to the temple in anticipation of worshiping you. Lord, as we, as we look ahead, as we look at your promises, as we look at the work that you are doing for your people, we anticipate that day when, when throngs of, of Jewish people will head towards the temple to call on the name of Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. We know, Lord, that you will fulfill those promises, that you will draw them to yourself in a glorious day that will be. We'll be looking down from heaven when that happens. What a glorious day that will be. In the meantime, Lord Jesus, may you find us pressing into you, pressing into the gospel, proclaiming your message. And Lord Jesus, may it be said of us that we supported your people. Lord, would you lead us and guide us that we may, we may, even in our missions efforts, support ministries that support the people of Israel. Lord Jesus, may we be found inside these promises, following after you. And may your name be made great among the people of Israel. In your name we pray.